0: Finland, Finland, Finland The country where I quite want to be Your mountain so lofty Your tops so tall Uh, If you're wondering, Luke is showing me the ads for Sound of Freedom on Amazon Prime. Are you planning to revisit? I mean, these are two of my favorite brands. Operation Underground Railroad and Amazon coming together to combat child sex trafficking. Amazon is actually
1: really promoting it very aggressively. Like, I've seen ads that are not Amazon ads for it, but...
0: Well, I mean, in fairness to Amazon, uh, it is one of...
1: Tell me again about Woke Capital.
0: Yeah, it is one of the (laughs) ten biggest movies of the year, so... uh, it, it, It is only natural that they would promote i mean fuck i saw a lot of ads for the flash on crave and it made half as much money as sound of freedom did but
1: didn't we ever establish whether sound of freedom like, like it made
0: dollars and cents it made
1: okay well i
0: would actually feel bad about watching sound of freedom at home like on a on a streaming app or something because i have to imagine that it's not the same version we saw in theaters because you'll recall the version we saw in theaters ended with Jim Caviezel speaking to the audience directly, imploring us to all buy tickets. And he put a QR code on screen.
1: Yeah, Yeah, folks, we've had a lot of fun tonight. But you know what's not fun? child sex trafficking and there are there are over 300 trillion children being trafficked in the US right now the he, US alone. He put a QR code on screen to invite <laughs> us, to invite all yeah. of our friends. To, to, invite, to invite us and the like other five people in the theater who, I don't want to step out of line here but uh, I don't think it's the most upright citizens that go, besides us, to go to see a film like that uh, at midday on a Tuesday or wherever it was. Well I don't
0: know, today we saw a movie at the exact same theater where we saw Sound of Freedom, the wow. Carlton Cinema and I think it's just a theater that attracts like widows and widowers who are like (laughs) 78 years old in the afternoon oh
1: i feel bad now
0: well it's just like the theater that we went to is like that's where that's where people go to kill time while while waiting
1: for the reaper
0: (laughs) and uh i'm sure a lot of the people that we saw sound of freedom with were just people like that people who were seeing whatever was on
1: well you know it's good for people to eat their vegetables sometimes you know scrooge was playing there today i'm sorry we missed that but you know with sound of freedom people got you know a film but also very important message so there's something uh well that people have been sending me all week and i'm bringing it up both uh because so many people have been sending it to me but also because like you know people know us by now. And you know, this is perfect fodder for the show. You may have seen this. Uh, Former Doctor Who showrunner wants to develop a British West Wing. Have you seen this?
0: Well, I saw it because you posted it uh, with your typical snark, with your typical (laughs) judging a book by its cover before it's even come out. Uh, I mean, you're on record as being not pro the West Wing, right? (laughs) Is that fair to say at this point?
1: That's fair to say. I mean, I'm not pro the West Wing. But one thing I do think about it is that uh, it is. Is better than any of these like hypothetical spinoffs that are periodically kicked around would be. Uh, I feel like there's something with political shows, particularly when they're successful, where people try to do spinoffs. And the spinoffs, it always kind of seems to me that they haven't actually understood what the show is. The West Wing is literally, like it's a show that is inextricable. The whole idea of it, the whole concept of it, is inseparable from the institution of the U.S. presidency. I have no idea what the former Doctor Who showrunner, Mr. Moffat, uh, is his name? what exactly uh he thinks a British West Wing would be? The show about Danish coalition politics, uh Borgen, which is a better much better show than the West Wing. People should check that out if they haven't seen it. That's a show where I'm forgetting who was gonna adapt it. I don't think it's popped up yet. But there was going to be an American Borgen. And it's like, what does an American Borgen mean? You mean a show where the lead character is a female politician? Because that's not what Borgen is. Borgen, if you don't have Danish coalition politics, you don't have Borgen. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And this is the same thing with the West Wing.
0: I completely disagree. I think the themes, the core themes of the West (laughs) Wing are timeless and easily (laughs) transferable from country to country. Because you want to know what the British West Wing is? It's about Tony Blair. It's about Keir Starmer. It's just, you know, whatever the sort of center left or, se- or center yeah. politics are, whatever the sort of elite liberal politics uh-huh. are, it's just transferred to that context. Uh-huh. There will be, you know, your little Corbynites in the one corner, and there will be the Boris Johnson, who, who I don't know who's, I don't know who's in British politics these days, but whoever the equivalent of Boris Johnson is on the right, Rishi Sunak. That's right. And uh, in the middle will be a sort of sensible person who understands. And also... <laughs> I mean, look, yeah, the West Wing is very invested in the majesty of the United States presidency and, you know, the goddamn White House and the flags and, and all that crap. And it'll be about Downing Street. It'll be about going to have tea with the queen every week. It'll be while well, she's passed the king, the king every week. It'll be about like they have the, the crown
1: is an example of how this kind of concept is transferable. <laughs> I mean, you're right. Well, you make a good point that a uh, smugness is truly caused. We need a Canadian West Wing, oh, actually, which God. I'm kind of amazed that we don't have it yet. You know, you're you're making me realize something else that irritates me about this, because it is well-established. The West Wing is has been a fetish object among, you know, a certain, like, cast of... Maybe this is just anecdotal because this is, like, the people who are visible to me, but, like, yeah, like, British journalists, like, kind of centristy or center left... Like, the kind of British journalist who, like, thinks that Keir Starmer and, you know, Tony Blair are, like, great transformational leaders. And if we could just get back... I'm not going to name her because why would I? But you know, the night Donald Trump was elected, there was one journalist who tweeted, you know, I'm going to be holding my West Wing DVDs a little closer tonight. You know,
0: there's a little hole in the middle of
1: them. (laughs) And you can imagine what you can do with that. (laughs) This bugs me because a particular pet peeve of mine is when the British fetishize the United States. And I'm an equal opportunity offender here. I also don't like particular ways that Americans fetishize the British, but I do think the politics of each are a little bit different. And at their worst, they're annoying in different ways. You know, I heard a story once about John Spencer, who plays Leo on the West Wing, Uh, like he was just visiting Britain or something. If people know the details of this, uh, do send them to me, I'm interested. But apparently he went to Britain and he was like invited to Downing Street He plays, like, the president's chief of staff, for those who haven't seen the show. He plays a certain kind of ideal of what, you know, a dynamic White House chief of staff, you know, basically isn't elected, but is basically helping run the world. Uh, That's what the character John Spencer plays. And apparently he was, like, invited to Downing Street, and he was like, "Uh, you guys, you know I'm an actor, right? Like, I don't... I'm like, I'm not a sort of international uh, diplomat or like a global political operative. Well, that's that's
0: master. loser mindset, because Martin <laughs> Sheen was out there in every election <laughs> cycle since 2000 doing speeches about as, as the
1: fake president,
0: <laughs> yeah. I've come here oh, to man. endorse.
1: You know, I've talked about this a 100 times already. But it, one of my, my favorite example of that I mean, so Bradley Whitford does all his bullshit, you know, stumbling for Hillary and stuff. But the, the undefeated top dog of doing this, you know, and whatever, I like Martin Sheen, I'm not going to knock him. But the time Rob Lowe got mad about About Bernie Sanders on Twitter in 2016, because, you know, the thing that really upset Rob Lowe, which I think is interesting, uh, was Bernie Sanders' tax plan. Rob Lowe, uh, who famously quit the West Wing because he didn't think his $75,000 an episode salary was enough. Uh, Anyway, yeah, he got so angry about Bernie that he tweeted a video of Sam Seaborn, his character on the West Wing, talking about how it's okay to attack the rich, but let's just not call them names while we do it.
0: Henry, last fall, every time your boss got on the stump and said, it's time for the rich to pay their fair share. I hid under a couch and changed my name. I left Gage Whitney making 400000 a year, which means I paid 27 times the national average in income tax. I paid my fair share, and the fair share of 26 other people. And I'm happy to, because that's the only way it's going to work. And it's in my best interest that everybody be able to go to schools and drive on roads, but I don't get 27 votes on election day. The fire department doesn't come to my house 27 times faster, and the water doesn't come out of my faucet 27 times hotter.
1: The top 1% of wage earners of this country pay for 22% of this country. Let's not call them names while they're doing it. Is all I'm saying. The scene is very funny, but it adds an extra layer of funny that Rob Lowe, like, tweeted himself in character doing it to respond to Bernie Sanders. Anyway. That reminds me of that.
0: You remember after Trump was elected in 2016, he had a party at Mar-a-Lago, like a New Year's party, and there was a picture of him and the Stallone brothers, <laughs> <laughs> Sylvester and Frank, and they were all doing, like, had their dukes up like they were boxers. And it's like, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone is only a boxer in the movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's not a real boxer.
1: Ah, Mar-a-Lago. It outshone even... For sales, I'd forgotten about that, but uh, that's awesome. We should figure out how to reverse engineer an episode around that as just a thumbnail. Uh, anyway, we'll move on from this in a second. But I think Stephen Moffat agrees with your take on a British West Wing. He says, we've got a problem. We think that being cynical is sophisticated, but that's how adolescents think our cynicism about our politics has resulted in cynical politicians. If you tell a child they're bad, they become bad. If you tell a politicians they're a bunch of egotistical maniacs, then where is the value in trying to be anything else? I think it might be necessary. And by it, of course, he means the British West Wing. Now, I think it's a very interesting comment. And it speaks to something genuinely perplexing for me about West Wing fandom or a certain kind of West Wing fandom that, uh, you know, has often in my experience prevailed among, you know, cultural elites and, and media people. A few years ago, I participated in a Vox uh, documentary, like an audio documentary that was sort of a retrospective on the West Wing. And, you know, they had me as a critical voice. And, you know, they they also had some journalists who were very positive on the West Wing. And I'm forgetting who it was, but there was a British journalist who was talking about how, you know, amidst Brexit and, you know, all the horrors of British politics, you know, probably Jeremy Corbyn as well. It's so nice to have a show that is so idealistic about politics. And I find that extraordinary. You you can see uh, Stephen Moffat channeling that exact same. He experiences the show in exactly the same way. He watches The West Wing and he thinks this is an idealistic show. And I think that's very interesting and also kind of revealing. It's something you hear a lot from people who adore that show. And I think the only way to make it legible, the only way I can make any sense of that claim that The West Wing is an idealistic show, is that it projects a certain kind of idealism about how political operatives should talk and how presidents should talk. And it offers a particular kind of uh, aesthetic of inspiration. Institutions and process that uh, you know some people find attractive, but to me that's a pretty parochial kind of idealism. I mean, I really wouldn't call that idealism at all. How can you call idealistic a show that is ostensibly presenting you know the most idealized liberal presidency ever, and they don't pass any significant legislation? Like I'm cribbing from my own work by this point, but you know I wrote in my essay on The West Wing a few years ago, like even in their wildest and most unconstrained fantasies, liberals accomplish nothing. And so, yeah, I've always found it perplexing when people call the show idealistic. And it's amazing that that is the movie's doing to justify the british west wing is we need an antidote to all this cynicism where you know the people in government they have the right kind of education they talk the right way they still don't change society in any recognizable way and you know maybe they do extrajudicial killing like uh, president bartlett does maybe they quote unquote save i.e cut social security but hey those walk and talks man
0: well he's since denied it but last week there was that report that tony blair was going to be the point person in europe to help resettle the Gazan refugees and i'd like to see that be maybe the plot on the first pilot episode of the British West Wing like really again in dark times an idealistic message that all of us countries really can work together. We can reach across the aisle. <laughs> well you know off mic you were asking me if i've been reading any books lately and i had to i had to confess that i haven't Will, will's eyes glazed over books what's that <laughs> what am i in school doing reading but no i actually haven't been reading any books but then i remembered i actually have been reading a book I've been reading the adult version of dracula by ed wood which oh, uh, i found a reprint of it on amazon it's one of the many novels he wrote over 100 novels and you can get these extremely overpriced reprints of them on amazon right now <laughs> not that i necessarily recommend supporting the the evil empire, but uh, fuck, where else am I going to get this?
1: this? Is incidentally, just before you start reading, this is the most Ed Wood books I've ever been in a room with. People can't see this, but we are surrounded by Ed Wood books right now. I have a whole whole stack. I've been doing a little bit of
0: research, and uh, it's actually written in that uh, what's the word, epistolary uh, yeah, the, yeah. the the epistolary style of the original Stoker book it says how these papers have been placed in sequence will be understood in their reading. All needless matters and events have been eliminated so that history of the horrendous occurrence may stand out as a simple fact: there is throughout no statement of past incidents that through faulty memory could have been in error. Thus all the selected records are exactly as recorded and given from the viewpoints and within the range of knowledge of those who were involved. Chapter One: Jonathan Harker's Journal Third May BISTRIS, A piece of ass is a piece of ass, be it in England or here in Transylvania. At least that's the way this buxom peasant girl appeared to me as she slipped the blouse up over her shoulders and then tugged it along her arms. She wasn't wearing any brassiere, so her breasts, anyway, it goes on like that. Uh, You know, just a great book. Again, done in that style. It starts with Jonathan Harker's journal, goes on to um, Mina's journal, letters here and there. I like Ed Wood's novels because they're all about 120 pages and they take as long to read as they took to write.
1: (laughs) Uh, And you can
0: you can they don't really follow like a clear like three act or even five act structure. It's more like, okay, here's a chapter. Here's another chapter here's another chapter. And then eventually we, we've we hit the quota. And all the chapters end with a sex scene. And they're all written in a kind of hard-boiled style. Anyway, the other book I've been reading lately is I've been rereading my favorite ever book on creativity, The Motern Method by Matt Farley, who has been discussed on this podcast and others many times. It's 136 pages with enormous lettering. You can read it in about an hour and a half. And it's his version of Mao's Little Red Book or <laughs> Brisson's you Notes know, on the Cinematographer. And I'd like to share some of this wisdom with you the listeners who are thinking you know we are in a new year thinking of embarking on your creative projects and i really do think this book is helpful because matt farley really figured out a way to you know there are certain models of success you know there's the let's call it the kevin smith model of success you max out your credit cards and you hope to hit the lottery with your creative project then there's the lewin davis model which is that you try and you try and eventually you fail and you get a job somewhere and you stop being creative here's a chapter a short chapter from farley's book called Called stay where you are the generally accepted story of the creative arts is that you go to a big city to pursue your dreams and to make it this has never really been mandatory and it is becoming increasingly unnecessary there was a time when your best chance of getting your art out there was for a big entertainment company to hire you to work for them for many this is still the dream if only because they have no idea there are plenty of alternatives now this should never have been the dream really an artist's dream shouldn't involve being an employee of a mega corporation who wants that An artist's dream should be to make enough money off the art so that the artist can afford to keep making art. You don't need to be employed by a megacorporation to do that. It's expensive to move to a big city. It's expensive to live in a big city. Once you're there, you might have to work more hours in order to make ends meet, which means you'll have less time to work on your art. All the while, you're hoping to be discovered by an industry gatekeeper. Is that the best environment for you to develop as an artist? Maybe it is for you. In that case, go for it. But for everyone else, before you go off to make it in the big city, consider making it at home. One last bit of prose here from a chapter called Release Everything. You could create art that you then hide in a closet somewhere, allowing no one else to see it. You tell yourself that this art is just for you. But I don't believe it. I'm pretty sure that you want people to see it. Art should be shared with other people. That's the whole point. Even if you really don't want people to see it, you still need to release it in the world. What does it mean? It means just making the work publicly available, on display somewhere. That would usually mean putting up on some kind of online platform, like a music or video site for songs and movies, or a web page for written and visual pieces, etc. Why must you release it into the world? Because until you do, it's never truly finished. You could always go back to that closet and put more finishing touches on it. By not releasing it, you're telling your brain that it's okay to keep thinking about that project, when in fact, it's time to start thinking about the next project. The next project will be harder and harder to come by as you have more and more unreleased works piling up. Get them out there into the world, and move on. Okay, now one last final thing, and this is the most useful of all. A chapter called, Wouldn't It Be Funny If? Sometimes in a conversation, you'll hypothesize about a creative idea by saying, Wouldn't it be funny if? Followed by a description of a very ridiculous idea. It's an idea that no self-respecting person would ever devote a lot of time to. But if you learned that someone had done it, you'd be curious about it, right? Of course you would. You'd bring it up in conversation with friends. Do that project. You have to do that project. A wonderfully ridiculous idea has fallen into your lap. All you have to do is devote a lot of time and energy into making it a reality. When it's over, it could become legendary. People will say, did you hear about that artist who? I think this is all very useful advice. So as we are here in a new year in 2024, do your ridiculous project, put it out somewhere, and then move on and do the next ridiculous project.
1: Yeah, trust me. When your friend says, let's do the Michael Moore podcast, just fucking do it.
0: Before we get to the movie, a few plugs patreon.com slash Michael You know it. You love it. You've heard of it. Just a quick update on some of what's on there right now. We recently did an episode on Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Finally, a long time coming. Uh, is it about Jeffrey Epstein? Or is it about a lot more than Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> uh, find out the answer to that question. We did a special tribute episode to the departing New Yorker writer Andy Borowitz, and we also did a year-in-review episode, looking back on all the classic Mike Us episodes from 2023. There's also an interview that I did with Guy Madden for my Stooge journal about uh, the Three Stooges, so uh, look for that there on patreon.com slash Mike Us. I have an additional personal plug. I have another screening happening in Toronto on January 23rd at the Fox Theatre in the beautiful Beaches neighborhood of Toronto, February 23rd. I'll be showing a comedy kung fu movie from 1976 that has never been seen since the 70s in a beautiful uncut widescreen version. There's a new restoration that we're showing. It's The Dragon Lives Again. It's a movie in which Bruce Lee goes to hell. He fights James Bond and Dracula and many other pop culture characters, but he doesn't do it alone. He makes friends with Popeye the Sailor. This is an actual (laughs) kung fu movie from the 1970s. It's a pure delight. You will never have another opportunity to see this movie in a movie theater. So come on out. It's my dream come true, frankly. You can get tickets at foxtheater.ca. Remember January twenty-third. Now on to the movie. In Soviet Russia, car drives you. Well that's not the thesis of Aki Korizmaki's 2023 festival hit Fallen Leaves. <laughs> Mä mentiin melkein naimisiin. Miksi te menneet? Pukkasin puhelinnumeron. numeron. et kysy numerotiedustelusta? En tiedä nimeä. Se kieltämättä vähän hait. This is a movie that I saw last fall at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was one of five movies that I saw on the first day. And it is a delight, actually, going to a film festival and having an experience like that. I mean, you don't necessarily do complete justice to all the movies, you know, going from one to the other to the other. Some of them, you know, quite dense art films. But it's kind of an exciting experience to get this, like, survey of international cinema. You know, the exciting things happening in movies and just go from, like, well, you know, in the morning you're in Switzerland and then you're in Japan. And then you're in Finland in this case, and then you're in Japan again. You know, an incredible full body immersive experience. But this movie, this is exactly the kind of movie you want to see as the fourth movie of a five festival day because it's 82 minutes long and it's a pure delight. And I wanted to take Luke to see it because I thought he would like it. And also because I'm so used to seeing movies about, you know, life behind the Iron Curtain, you know, (laughs) people just trying to find love despite having to stand in the bread lines all day and work Mm -hmm. at the factories. Yeah,
1: the the life of gray regimentation that exists in every society that hasn't embraced, you know, liberal capitalism.
0: Did I tell you that when I was in Berlin a year ago, I went to the DDR Museum, which is the Museum of Life Behind the Iron Curtain, basically. And there's, there's some text on the wall that's like now we're taking you back in time you know imagine you know 25 channels 10 newspapers but just one perspective and i thought yeah imagine that <laughs> and, you know but then as i went in i thought okay you know rubbing my hands together let's find out about the breadlines, misery in the soviet union and then i get there and it's like oh it's just i don't know it just looks like they show you what an apartment looked like they show you what the tv commercials look like they show you what the cars and the cereals and everything it's just like oh it's basically looked like what a America looked like at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are many uh, differences, large and small. But you know, the impression I got from leaving it was, if you were just an ordinary workaday person, basically the same.
1: Well, I feel like in the United States, uh, especially in American culture, there's been a tendency to portray like anything that happened east of West Berlin, you know, between the late 1940s and you know the early 1990s, like it's all it's all darkness at noon. These societies of terrifying regimentation, without color and, you know, where people didn't experience joy and that kind of stuff. And yeah, of course that's ridiculous. But actually, uh, Will first alerted me to this film, uh, Fallen Leaves, which indeed is a is a wonderful and delightful film. I was very pleased to see it today. After we did, gosh, I, I don't remember the name of the movie, but the Tetris movie. What was I believe it was, it was called Tetris. It was just called Tetris, okay. Where the thesis of that movie, which was, you know, surprisingly right wing for just a movie about fucking Tetris. It was like, yeah, you know, Tetris it embodies a kind of a spirit of individualism that all the Russian characters in that movie are like what is freedom we not have this well you, you <laughs> got the sense the
0: Tetris kind of emerged like you know the whole country was computer programmers and uh, but but shopkeepers who didn't get to keep the profit That's they, right. they had to hand it right back to the freaking mm-hmm. nanny state uh-huh. and all the computer technicians were you know just inputting data about <laughs> um, how many rubles they had to give back to the government but there was one who was bored one day and he created he was like what if Block felt." on block yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and
0: this was considered so powerful because putting those blocks together having the having the choice of where to put a block that's the feeling of liberation
1: right and that was another movie where you know there's it very much uh embodied a trend that will and i have now have now observed in uh, well quite a number of things we've watched where Western freedom and all that it brings is represented in like consumer products and you know in this case Tetris but also there's there's a whole bunch of like 80s mu- music in that movie like American and European like Western European 80s music uh, it's like in that awful uh, Michael Keaton thing we saw about you know the, the courageous uh, journalists who definitely weren't stenographers during the first Gulf War where in that it's like the thing that the people of Kuwait have lost by being invaded by uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq is like Pepsi and Coke. And so Will brought up uh, this film Fallen Leaves as an example of a film that kind of brings the same perspective to bear just on you know modern capitalist societies and really takes a close look at how much just grayness and regimentation and even you know uh, surveillance of a kind anyway uh, they involve. This movie is very funny. It's very tender. Uh, I think it's very creative. I really like the laconic characters and the very minimalist but also poignant dialogue. I like the way it was shot. I liked it. Uh, how symmetrical everything was uh yeah when, when i was selling treat. it to
0: luke i said it's like a finnish wes anderson which watching it again it's like well that's not really an accurate comparison <laughs> but you know it's it has that like slightly hyper real tone to it and everybody is sort of dry and deadpan. the director by the way aki korismaki is probably finland's best known art house director he came to prominence in the 1980s with movies including leningrad cowboys go america and the match factory girl he has one out every couple years the Havre* and the other side of home for his last view. I would not claim to be an expert on karismaki although I would like to be. I really enjoy everything I've seen of his. This will be an easy plot to summarize because it's 82 minutes long and not a great deal happens in it. And I should say that I guess this will be a spoiler discussion.
1: I don't usually feel bad about spoilers when we're talking about, you know, the Santa Claus 3 or whatever. But I do think this one, if you're not, you know, using this podcast to get through, you know, a commute or something, and you have the wherewithal to pause it and go watch the movie, you know, do, because there is a little bit of suspense in this movie. And, you know, I'm not one for uh, spoiler warnings, but I guess, you know, consider yourself warned. It would be nice if some of you had the experience that I did today, you know, going into this movie and. Seeing it blind but that's not essentially there you'll enjoy it either way
0: and let me just say if you need something to get you through your commute i uh, mean i suggest patreon.com slash michael and us where we have a years of back catalog
1: we already did a plug that is so shameless no 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 <laughs> it's
0: it's fine listen i i have imaginary kids to get through imaginary college uh so the main characters are ansa and holapa who are two blue collar workers in helsinki modern helsinki and Ansa goes from job to job. She's first working a zero-hour contract in a supermarket. What is a zero-hour contract?
1: Yeah, so I'm surprised that uh, these are legal in Finland, but essentially a zero-hours contract is one in which... Your employer can give you as few or as many hours as they want at their discretion. They can terminate you at any time, basically without cause. And essentially, they put you in a situation where you're just kind of on call, but also you may not get hours. Uh, There might be a whole week where they they decide, well, we don't need you, so then how do you make money that week? There is absolutely no case for why these these should exist. But not only is ANSA on a zero-hours contract— I like how much of the film is just showing these extremely mundane and kind of uh, boring tasks that she has to perform. Her job, I guess, is to go around with a little shopping cart and look at various products. You know, we see her uh, taking various cheeses off a shelf and looking at their expiry dates. And if the expiry date has reached a certain point, she has to put a little discount sticker on it. Uh, she's later fired because uh, her employers who say very dryly, you know, you've been under surveillance or something, you know, you've been uh, suspected of uh, nefarious behavior. They tell her to empty your bag and she's uh, she's put an expired sandwich in there. Well,
0: and also one of her fellow employees has seen her, you know, at the end of the day, she throws some of the expired food into the dumpster and a guy comes up to her and says, hey, can I take some of this milk? And she says, sure. And, you know, Karazmaki cuts to this employee staring daggers at her like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to report her to the boss and so when the bosses stop her and the other two employees and say empty your purses and they've all they've all got some like piece of expired food that they've stashed away (laughs) they say something like doesn't matter it belongs in the garbage
1: yeah they say well if it's expired you can't sell it so what's the problem if we take it and it's like you know well rules are rules
0: it's cheating the system and like it's such a good movie about capitalism because it's a suggestion that the products are earned what actually matters is that you pay for the thing it is actually a sort of moral fault if you're taking something without the transaction. And the guy, the employee who snitches, ends up getting rewarded by being given the sandwich by the boss at the end.
1: That's right. And as the three women are leaving, and you know, we should say her two coworkers, uh, you know, very comradely people, they uh, they quit in solidarity, which good for them, I say. But you know, they're all glowering at this guy, and he says, "I was only following orders."
0: <laughs> There's an attitude of scarcity among most of the businesses seen in the movie. Later on, she goes to this coffee shop that sort of rents out laptops by the hour and asks the guy, you know, how much is the laptop? And he says, well, it's 10 euros for half an hour. She says, seems a little expensive, doesn't it? And he says, "Uh, it's a very very expensive laptop, and they break down and they cost a lot to maintain. She says, well, can I pay 8 euros? I have 8 euros. I'll I'll pay the rest later. I don't mean to be insulting. He says, well, you are insulting, (laughs) but but here, take it. And uh, the clock is ticking now, so you better start using it. This atmosphere of paucity, we can, we can feel it everywhere. On the way back, we actually stopped at Starbucks to get a coffee, and uh, <laughs> you'll notice they've taken out all of the seating at Starbucks.
1: Yes, yes. And, it, and actually there's another important detail to this story, which is that as we were walking there, I was recalling to Will a kind of momentous meeting that I had there circa 2010.
0: You know, we were hashing over our misspent youth, you know, our varsity <laughs> time again.
1: Yeah, it was uh, meeting up with two people and actually deciding something, which at the time actually felt pretty momentous. It was a different kind of coffee. Coffee shop there, but of course, just like in The Matrix where everyone eventually becomes Agent Smith, you know, every cafe eventually becomes a Starbucks. But we got in there and I thought, Oh, we'll have a nice leisurely sit down, we'll talk about the movie a little bit, you know, we'll talk about uh how our year's going so far. And we'll point it out, uh yeah, there's they've they've basically gotten rid of all, all the seating that would be conducive to, you know, sitting <laughs> that you might actually use to do anything more than like put your bag down for like five seconds. And this is they've the same
0: of- at yeah. almost all Starbucks. Yes. This is- this has been a very conscious yes. strategy because they want to encourage turnover, and uh, they they don't want the homeless That's coming right. in. Yes, and absolutely. so and you were you were mentioning that w- at one of these Starbucks, they have a bathroom code, which is always the most humiliating thing to have to ask for. It's like, um, excuse me, I'd like to, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh I, I'd like to do. My, Can my, I relieve myself? My basest functions, yeah. <laughs> my most disgusting <laughs> yeah, private yeah. functions. Can yeah, I in a
1: in a public space, yeah. which just makes yeah. it worse? I'm in my
0: 30s. Can I ask? I ask <laughs> you for a Can key. I go to the
1: bathroom. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah I don't know Kenya. <laughs> uh, yeah, and
0: you said that like they change the password yes. every week. Well,
1: there's there is one that I've been working in just because it's you know nearby where I live, and so. When I first went in there to work the other week, I said, you know, I did the humiliating ritual and I asked, can I have the code? And then I wrote it down and I thought, okay, that's great. I'll never have to ask again. Uh, but nope, it turns out they change it every single day because, you know, we wouldn't want the wrong per We wouldn't want somebody abusing the bathroom privileges of the Starbucks. That would be the worst thing to ever happen. And
0: you know what's great? Starbucks is closing everywhere. The business is down because what do we go to Starbucks for? Not for the coffee, which fucking sucks. It's burnt shit coffee.
1: It's good coffee. I hate it. <laughs>
0: Luke is shaking his head. He
1: disagrees, but I hate it. I think it's uh, fine. Whatever. But, but
0: but you know what do we use Starbucks for? We use it for the Wi Fi and for the bathroom. Those are the two functions, and they've destroyed that.
1: By the way, we have a number of listeners who are with Starbucks Workers United. Love hearing from you guys. Yeah, this Love- is not criticism
0: to you. <laughs> this is criticism to Howard Schultz,
1: that bastard. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. To turn back to the movie, the thing about it is so many of these sequences. I mean, you're right that they do have this vaguely Wes Anderson ish kind of deliberately mannered uh, dialogue. You know, characters sort of offering a rejoinder to something that may be a rejoinder to the previous comment, but isn't really a response to the thing the person just said. All kind of little flourishes like that. And there's a little bit of absurdism to it. You know, in the scene we were just talking about the, uh, you know, rat security guy saying, I was only following orders. But the thing is... I mean, I've worked in places that have this level of regimentation. I'm sure I told you the story, Will, about when I got in trouble at the restaurant I used to work at for uh, punching in when I came down the stairs to change. I was supposed to change first and then punch in when I was going back up the stairs when I was already dressed because it was understood that my shift did not begin until I had, like, literally started to go up the stairs towards and the And there's kitchen. a little
0: Gareth Keenan in every office.
1: I mean, literally, there were, like, yeah, there were, the restaurant was no exception. There was at least one guy who was a kind of, he was the local Vichy collaborator. But yeah, there was, I was given a very, like, stern and matter-of-fact talking down to, because, you know, the restaurant might have been at risk of losing, like, I don't know, uh, one cent every week if they had to pay me for the 30 seconds where I was getting changed, which obviously they should have fucking paid me for that. I'm at work. If I can digress uh, just a little more before we come back to the movie, something I thought of frequently watching Fallen Leaves was, uh, do you remember the sequence in Mike Lee's wonderful film, Naked, where uh, David Thewlis visits that security guard or he's, he's sort of sitting outside of a place, shivering, reading his book, and the guard you know, basically invites him in. Do you know the one I'm, ta- the part yes, I'm talking about? Yes, of course about? I do, yeah. And in conversation with the security guard, you know, he's Thewlis's character, Johnny, is trying to figure out what exactly he's guarding here. And it turns out he's guarding empty space There is nothing here. But uh, his job still requires him to get up from his desk uh, once every hour and patrol, which is hilarious because it's a locked building with nothing in it. So like, what is he patrolling to protect? But nevertheless, he has to do it. And he has this uh, stupid little contraption that he has to go to various sites in the facility and tap to show that he's done his job completely pointless, serves no productive function. Literally just something that an employer would impose upon an employee because they can. I feel like uh, I was given cause, a lot of cause, to think back to that scene watching Fallen Leaves.
0: The other main character is Holapa, who is a construction worker. He's also an alcoholic. There are two kinds of conversations in this movie. There are the ones where it's quiet because there's nothing to say. And there are ones where it's quiet because nothing needs to be said. And frequently to escape their miserable existences, the characters in this movie go to a local bar with some karaoke where um, there's nothing to say. You know, they're all just sort of sitting there uh, pounding back drinks, which is, you know, I'm sure many of us can identify with this. You're at the bad job and you go there and you spend most of your waking life there. Uh, You're getting up at six and, you know, you're getting home at seven in the PM, that is. And then on Friday, your fun relief is you and the
1: one coworker you can stand go to the bar. You get to spend half your wages for the day on like a few pints or whatever. Right. And And you get to listen to people do karaoke, which, by the way, something I really liked about the karaoke in this movie is how variable the song choices are. The the first time they go in there, the first time Holipa and his friend, who I think's name is uh, Huotari, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that apologies to any Finnish listeners, but the first time they go in there, there's a guy, uh, like at the beginning, he's, there's a guy singing ZZ Top doing a pretty good uh, ZZ Top rendition I have to say, and then the next guy is like, uh, and we now have uh, UC singing uh, Schubert's Serenade or something the song choices are very eclectic and even though it's kind of an improbable sequence of songs, and I guess it's kind of intentionally absurdist, I also found it very charming and kind of, in a certain sense, even plausible. This is something the film, I think, does very well is, you know, it's not saying that its characters are robots who don't have inner lives or interiority, don't feel things, don't have affection for other people in their lives, don't have baggage they're carrying, traumas, etc. It's saying the world around them is constantly trying to make them into robots. What I love about this sequence is, you know, everybody gets up and they've all got a completely different thing. One guy wants to do ZZ Top, another guy, Schubert's Serenade.
0: So the characters meet at this bar. Ansa and Holapa are each there with a friend of theirs Huapa's uh, friend Huatari performs you know I think rather badly a karaoke song <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah this and, guy's funny I uh, like this guy uh, a- Ansa and her friend Lisa are complimenting him on his beautiful voice <laughs> you know perhaps perhaps not entirely sincerely and Lisa is making a joke about how oh you know for, for such an older man your voice is very good like, I thought
1: this joke was funny because he's honestly like pretty handsome for like a middle-aged yeah. guy but it becomes a running gag about <laughs> yeah, yeah. how he's trying to convince her he's actually not he's, he's
0: not even 50 yet <laughs> <laughs> actually but here ansa and Holapa meet and they have a courtship i mean the two performances by the actors whose names i won't even attempt to pronounce are just wonderful <laughs> because they communicate so much i mean it's this deadpan almost brissonian acting and in fact the name of robert brisson is name checked a couple times yes, in this film yeah. um but it is very brissonian acting that nevertheless much is communicated in the eyes and in just subtle mannerisms when they first go out for a coffee together after her boss is taken by police for dealing drugs um, <laughs> you know they're having coffee and she just does this like little flicker with her eyes that like communicates very subtly a little bit of excitement to be in his presence you know just a little bit of tenderness a lot of the rest of the movie is about their courtship which is constantly thwarted by forces both internal and external first he loses her phone number and so can't contact her by the way they go to see a movie which uh, is a zombie film yeah
1: what is it it's like an adam driver yeah. zombie movie yeah. what was it uh,
0: believe it or not it is jim jarmusch's film Film, the dead don't die really? which is I, I don't quite know what to make of its use in this movie <laughs> because it's playing at this art film theater where there are posters for Godard movies up on the wall and you know you see this clip that looks absolutely absurd of all these zombies attacking the cops and then two characters come out and say oh it reminds me of Bresson's Diary of a Country Priest <laughs> actually it reminded me of Godard's uh, you know and the band apart
1: that exchange is so funny because then they both just having said that having said what it reminds them of they both just Turn around and walk away from each other and go in different directions. The movie has so many funny little, like, subtle moments like that.
0: I'm actually curious what Karismaki is doing with that because, I mean, Karismaki and Jarmusch are two filmmakers who would appear to share a certain kinship together in their wry sense of humor and their pacing and the kind of deadpan quality of their comedies. But, you know, the way he uses that clip from the Jarmusch movie, it's so brutally out of I mean, it's not his best movie by any <laughs> means, but it's so brutally out of context. You'd think it was like a, a normal zombie movie. There's some suggestion in the dialogue of like well isn't it pathetic that we all went to see this terrible movie right <laughs> i don't think that's too uncharitable a reading <laughs> anyway the ghosts of sort of mid-century modernist arthouse classics kind of hangs over a lot of the movie there are posters of godard and brisson and fellini movies all through the movie just at bars and restaurants i'm not entirely sure what to make of it because they stick out like a sore thumb in this vista that is otherwise cold and functional and a lot of construction
1: i have a reading of that i don't know, we'd have to we'd have to ask the director. But my reading of that is pretty straightforward. Actually, I think it's meant to harken back to kind of post-war social democracy that produced all of this, you know, great and challenging art. And it's sort of saying, you know, there was a time, you know, if only a couple of decades or whatever, where the lives of many fewer Europeans anyway, were quite this regimented and gray. I think that's my reading of it.
0: And now Jim Jarmusch makes The Dead Don't Die. (laughs) Um, So a lot of the film follows these two characters as they have a series of... Of missed connections and keep running into each other and keep trying to spark this courtship. Among other things, Holapa has to conquer his alcoholism. None of this is played for melodrama, by the way. It's very matter-of-fact. And while the movie is about everyday sort of desperation and immiseration, it's it's also not miserable. The characters do have feelings and interiority and experience joy and experience sorrow and experience friendship. It's not an exercise in miserabilism you know? It's just matter-of-fact.
1: Yeah, I agree. I guess there's no point in uh, running through every scene where one of the characters is fired or exploited at work, but uh, one that I found particularly devastating dating is, you know, he's a craftsman, he's a metal worker, and uh, there's a scene where he's he's gotten injured at work, and this is after we've seen him repeatedly told uh, his foreman, you know, the equipment they're using needs, they like, they needs to be replaced, it's dangerous to keep using it, uh, it's making the work slower, uh, and then, of course, you know, he gets injured somehow on the job. We don't see the injury take place, we just see him being uh, treated by, uh, you know, some ambulance workers have shown up, and then the ambulance worker says, okay, well, now we have to do a breathalyzer test, that's just a Part of any accident scene, and of course he's got alcohol uh, in his blood, which they quickly detect, and then he gets fired. So, having been uh, injured at work because of unsafe conditions that he's warned his uh, employer about in the past, you know, he gets fired. It's absolutely brutal. Not only does he lose his job, but he's got this horrific injury on his arm. There are many scenes like this in the movie, but that's the one that was uh, the most difficult for me to watch. It's a little too real.
0: Much of the movie is about the sort of everyday pleasures we have access to to get through this life, whether it's love, whether it's, you know, having a dog. There's a very touching scene where she adopts a dog who's, you know, about to be put down. And, uh, you know, one of the best dogs I've seen in a movie of oh, late.
1: A very good dog.
0: To going for a drink, to going to the movies, you know, various strategies to get through life. One point that I'm a little curious about your reading of, the whole movie takes place against the backdrop of the Russia-Ukraine war. Perpetually, characters are turning on the radio and hearing about, you know, Putin strikes a hospital, Putin does this, Putin does that. And then they're turning off the radio instead of muttering to themselves like, ah, bloody war. What do you make of that? Because in the months since I saw this movie for the first time and now, you know, another very significant war has broken out where, you know, I, I, I hospitals
1: kind of, have been involved.
0: Yeah, you know, significant strikes on civilian populations. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the things that we're hearing in the radio broadcast seem to be happening on an hourly basis over the last few weeks. And I feel like uh, we kind of relate to it much in the same way that the characters in this movie do. It's like they turn on the radio, they hear something horrible that is both happening and is very disconnected from their lives, and then they turn the radio off and they go, oh man, that's terrible.
1: Well, I think there's only one instance where a character actually reacts so directly. Uh, There's something where, you know, the first time Halapa comes over to Ansa's house, she goes to put on some music, but then when she turns the radio on, uh, you know, it's just some news about the war. And she says, ah, bloody war, and she turns it off. But I'm pretty sure that in every other instance where the radio was turned on and this was the news... It kind of seems like the characters are more turning it off, if not out of boredom, than out of a sense of kind of dislocation or disinterest in it. Because as you said, it's something horrible that's happening at a distance. There's a single instance towards the end of the film where one of them turns on the radio and it's just some news about the weather. And I feel like that is kind of the key to understanding this motif throughout the movie. The world around these characters flattens them so much that even news of Russia's strike on the hospital in Mariupol becomes, you know, like the weather. Because that's how much their surroundings and the economic system which they live under deadens and flattens their surroundings.
0: It's funny, in virtually any shot, like when Kurizmaki has an establishing shot of just the street, there's always a crane in the sky. There's never yeah. any sort of suggestion that we're in a depression.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Helsinki seems quite prosperous in a lot of ways. Uh, somebody's making money, and yet to these characters, it may as well be a depression. <inaudible> Pidin. Hän koskaan nauranut niin paljon. Tapaammeko siis vielä? Haluaisitko?
1: I'm not exactly sure how to close uh, our discussion on this movie, except to say you should go see it. Uh, it's it's wonderful. It's charming. I'm glad Will introduced me to it. I hope uh, we introduced some of you to it as well. But uh, in watching it, there was a particular quote uh, that came to mind from uh, Chris Mizano, who's a fellow uh, Jacobin contributor. I've cited this a number of times because I think it's so uh, succinctly and wonderfully put. Chris writes, the one-sided focus of most Marxists and socialists on distributional questions has obscured the fact that the animating principle of the left is not so much equality, but rather freedom. Freedom from alienating work and freedom to use our time and creativity for our own self-directed ends. Socialism does not equal the roughly equal division of stuff. The martyrs of the labor movement didn't give up their lives so that everyone could have the right to buy an iPhone or a plasma screen TV or to waste their lives working at crap jobs." I think that is so wonderfully put. And I think uh, Chris is right that, you know, because on the left, we spend so much time concerning ourselves with questions of uh, distributive justice and economic redistribution and such. I think that actually can kind of obscure that the animating mission, all this, in a sense, equality is just a a means to an end, you know, and that end, as he says, is human freedom. You know, under liberal capitalism, we're all supposed to be free because, uh, you know, we have uh, political rights, we have citizens. civil rights, so, you know, we have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, we can all vote, so if you don't like the party that's in power, you can vote for another one, etc. And what socialists have been saying for 200 years now is that, no, actually, that's an incomplete, at best, an incomplete view of human freedom, because, of course, most of us uh, spend the majority of our, you know, waking adult lives working in what, you know, in many cases, in which, you know, this film depicts very nicely, in what are essentially private tyranny is where, you know, for X numbers of hours a day, you're required to perform a task or a series of tasks that uh, you would absolutely not be doing if you didn't literally have to in order to eat and put a roof over your head. In many cases, particularly if you're doing uh, physical work or manual work, it's taking a toll on your body as well. It's the worst jobs tend to take a toll on your mental health as well. And so, yes, in theory, like there's a constitutional document somewhere that says, uh, you know, all citizens of such and such a society are are equal before the law, and they all have the same rights. But for the majority, for working people, that's not really true. Because in the space, in the sphere where they spend the majority of their day, there actually isn't democracy. They're not choosing how to uh, spend their time. They don't have a say in what their surrounding conditions are. If there's a problem, they're not really in a position to change it in most cases. I mean, you might form a union, but in the United States anyway, labor law is so tilted towards employers that, you know, most union elections take place under conditions that would not pass scrutiny, you know, if there were international monitors present. If there were fair labor laws, there'd be 60 million more unionized workers in the United States tomorrow. But so I wanted to share that quote from uh, Chris Maizano. And I think to tie this whole discussion back to the moment uh, Will first told me about this film, you know, Will was exactly right. You know, when he pointed out that we're we're constantly watching these films where it's like, oh, look at life under socialism, and then it's actually just showing us what life under capitalism often is. This film shows that with absolutely remarkable humor and tenderness. And uh, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. All